For over 62 years and 3,166 issues, and counting, Sports Illustrated has built a reputation as the pinnacle of American sports writing. Now, do we deserve that distinction? Decide for yourself. Peruse any of the roughly 80,000 stories available for free in the SI Vault, which debuted last week at si.com vault. Now it's all there. Do you remember an SI story from years past that you'd like to reread? The new vault is searchable, so you'll be able to find that story. Have a vague recollection of a cover that you enjoyed? Well, every single cover is up there, too. It's all free, and it's all at si.com vault. Once again, that's si.com vault. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I'm SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior editor, Grant Wall, SI.com's Brian Strauss, and SI.com's Leave You Bird. Guys, we're going to talk a lot about the U.S. men's national team and U.S. soccer as a whole after a busy FIFA international fixture window. Uh, each of you guys were on site uh, for, for the three games. Um, Grant, you were in Guatemala for the disaster uh, in Guatemala City. <laughs> exactly. Um, Brian, you were in Columbus for the redemption uh, for nothing. And then the view, you were at uh, Toyota Stadium in Frisco, Texas for the latest Olympic failure. So we are going to touch on all of this, but let's start with uh, Tuesday night's 4 nothing win in Columbus. Brian, you were there. Uh, the, the sinking ship has has risen back to the surface. The sky is no longer falling. The U.S. is back on track uh, to get to the 2018 World Cup, or at least the hexagonal. Um, what did What did you see last night, and, and what were some of your biggest takeaways after talking to some of the players? Uh, definitely something in the water in, in Columbus. You know, Michael Bradley used the word mystique. Uh, you know, the U.S. is now 8-0-3 at that stadium. The, the support is always good, and, and um, you know, Columbus uh, pulled it out for him again. Guatemala is awful. Um, they're a very, very bad team. And watching that game and watching a, a, a U.S. squad that's had such a poor eight months just absolutely run through and destroy Guatemala. Really, I mean, we were all kind of talking about it in the press box. Like, how did they lose to this team? How did this happen? It really just made Friday sort of all the more baffling and 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 troubling and inexplicable. Um, because, you know, I mean... Guatemala was wearing cement shoes. You know, they just had no idea. Uh, they offered no resistance. Um, and, and the U.S. should uh, handily beat teams like that. And, you know, I guess to their credit on uh, on Tuesday night, they did. And they go from the brink of, of potentially not even making the hex if the worst case scenario had unfolded Tuesday in Columbus uh, to now they can go ahead and clinch a place in their next game. Um, you know, if they beat St. Vincent and the Grenadines and then if Trinidad takes care of Guatemala, um, those, those two winners would go through. So it's, it's amazing how, how quickly fortunes change. Um, in the end, in the end, in every, you go back through every cycle, every world cup qualifying cycle, there are, there are losses in Latin America. It happens. It happens every single time. Um, and every single time the U S rebounds from those losses with wins at home, they haven't lost a home qualifier since 2001. That's 15 years. I think what's got everybody kind of crazy, or at least had them kind of crazy going into to uh, to last night's game. I don't know how much craziness there still is, 
is that that loss to Guatemala, A, was hideous, and B, came on the back of a really miserable seven, eight months, you know, including the Gold Cup and the loss to Mexico. And it didn't seem like as much of an outlier as other defeats have uh, because it was part of a run that was so sort of, you know, just desultory and unsatisfying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the mounting pressure and, and just some of those results, like you're saying, um, in, in the Gold Cup especially, just just things that, you know, five years into the Klinsman era, we're, we're expecting a little more. You know, the standard should yeah, rise. Point. Yeah, too many too many embarrassing sort of head-shaking results for, for a guy who promised so much. Uh, you know, yeah, like you said, now five years in, it shouldn't be happening. When you talk about the overall direction of the U.S. men's national team over the past 18 months since the end of the World Cup, when it comes to competitive games, games that matter, it's a bad overall direction. And to be honest, a 4 nothing win over a horrible Guatemala team on Tuesday doesn't change that. Uh, I think we should put this into words, though. The U.S. going into this game on Tuesday, if they lost, were really effectively out of the World Cup more than two years before the World Cup starts. And that's a crazy thing to say and to have to find yourself in that situation for the United States. And I also think, yes, there were some similarities to previous cycles, but I, I cannot imagine, I can't think of a loss as bad as the one to Guatemala in Guatemala. And maybe you guys can, can argue with me on this one. Guatemala is so bad. <laughs> like magnitudes of badness worse than any team that has ever beaten the U.S. that I can think of, it's just, it's horrible. And they were horrible on Tuesday night. That was like one of the big takeaways, as Brian said. Like, I can't believe the U.S. lost to these guys. And and to their credit, they came out and and pressured the U.S. uh, in Guatemala City, Grant, where where you were at. Um, The U.S. didn't help themselves. Edgar Castillo's back pass to set up uh, the the corner that led to the first goal, and a lot of people are going to wonder how in the hell Edgar Castillo is still a starting left back for the U.S. in World Cup qualifying, no less. And and that's a, another topic. Um, but look, they they pounced on mistakes. They made the U.S. pay, and the U.S. had it looked like they had no plan on the field in that game. It was, it was just completely night and day. Yeah, I was in the stadium, and you know, two goals conceded in the first fifteen minutes. Uh, pretty big U.S. screw ups on both uh, by multiple players. I do want to get one thing across. I was in that stadium, not a threatening atmosphere. So if anyone's saying, oh, a really hostile atmosphere, not really. You know, there's a, there's a track around that field in Guatemala. Uh, it was not a full stadium, not close to a full stadium. And yes, the Guatemalan fans were excited when they won the game, but there was a huge pessimism in Guatemala about their own team. The first guy I talked to when I landed was the taxi guy saying, we are terrible. <laughs> And he was right, you know. I think they lost to Trinidad at home in the first game of this round. They barely got by Bermuda in the first previous round of qualifying. They barely got by our old friends Antigua and Barbuda in the last round. It's just, you know, new coach. They're horrible. (laughs) Magnitudes of of badness, Yes, if, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, it, look, Brian, it, it helps that the U.S. got off to the start that they did, right? 12 minutes in, Clint Dempsey scores. And that, I think, relieved a, a ton of pressure. Even the last time they were in that position um, in Columbus, what was it, four years ago, uh, against Jamaica, it took until the second half for them to score. And and you could kind of 
feel the the pressure still building throughout that game until I think it was Hercules Gomez had a, had a free kick and, and scored and they won on that goal. Um, this was was over pretty soon, um, and that had to have and I'm sure you felt that in the stadium, kind of a an, an aura of okay, this is this is going to be the U.S.'s night. Yeah, this this was not like giving up a goal to St. Vincent in the fifth minute. No. But, um, no, I mean, it, look, it highlights how important Clint Dempsey still is to this team. And, and he he admonished himself for missing that. He said he should have had a couple goals in Guatemala City. You know, the finishing needed to be better. He was right. Uh, and that was a nice finish off of uh, one of two uh, two of Giassi's artists. Oh, my God, what just happened? Assists. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and it was downhill from there. I mean, look, the, 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 look, Cl- credit to Jurgen Klinsmann for getting the lineup right, for getting the balance right, for putting more a greater number of guys in positions where they can do what they do best. Um, the question is, was it an accident? You know, uh, you know, is it, is it, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day or, or, you know, is he starting to figure out certain things about these players? And will we see some of this again, moving forward? Um, you know, having Jeff Cameron was just, was, was imperious in, in central defense. Um, and obviously his time as a defensive midfielder gives him a, you know, sound, good vision of the field. It was his long ball that set up the first goal. Uh, DeAndre Yedlin really has improved defensively at Sunderland. I mean, you could you you could see some of his, you know, uh, awareness and improved reading of the game and better instincts and things like that on display the other night uh, when Guatemala did have the chance to counter. Um, and and once again, putting Michael Bradley in a, in position where he doesn't have to babysit where he doesn't have to do absolutely everything is better for this team. Um, and, and, and Kyle Beckerman is, is the security blanket, so to speak, that, that not only kept the two center backs tied together uh, when, when, because the uh, Castillo and Yedlin were, were bombing forward so much, uh, but also, you know, didn't, didn't leave Bradley sort of having to constantly track back and defend and start things back up again in possession. So all of these things Jurgen got right. I asked over and over last night after the game, what's repeatable? What 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 might we see again? What patterns? What positions? What partnerships uh, did we see tonight that could start to build some sort of core foundation going forward? The things the players have been asking for on this team. Give us, when we come into camp, we want to know what we're expecting. We want to know what kind of soccer you want us to play. We want to have a sense of what we're getting ourselves into. Uh, and over and over, the answer was was more of more of an intangible, more of just an attitude and an approach. Uh, and 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 the players and 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 Klinsman claimed that that was the difference last night. That's that's crazy to me, though. It's like you've got a formula that that works when you need it to. Shouldn't that this isn't like a the whole plane should be made out of the black box kind of thing. Like this is way more simple than that. Like you've you've got uh, a proven a proven system, a proven method. Why, why is it so difficult to turn back to that? <laughs> no, I know. I mean, like, you look at the, the players I talked to this week from the World Cup 2002 quarterfinalist U.S. team, all of them said basically a similar thing, which is there's not a big core group of guys on this current U.S. national team like they had back in 02 when you had a group that basically everyone knew that several guys, as many as 8 to 10, were going to be starting and there was a real collective memory and an idea of how to play with each other. And when your team is not together that often, you really can be helped by that. Uh, right now, there's been a lack of uncertainty or a total uh, uncertainty between the players. You know, Jeff Cameron's a great example, a guy who told us on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, he's comfortable as a central player. Uh, and then Clinton puts him out right in Guatemala, gets it right and puts him at center back. 
uh, on Tuesday night, DeAndre Yedlin back at right back where he should be, where he's comfortable. And I think it's it's time now, you know, World Cup qualifying's happening. So pencil in Jeff Cameron as a starting center back every time, as long as he's healthy. Put DeAndre Yedlin as your right back every time, as long as he's healthy. You know, I don't know if John Brooks or Matt Beasler is the guy you, you put next to Cameron, but pick one and go with him. And, and let that continuity build. Pick a goalkeeper. Forget this platoon stuff. And, and start to build a core group and go with it. And that's what I hope happens moving forward with this team because the players want it, fans certainly want it, and I think you're going to get better results that way. And it would be one thing if this was like the first year of a new manager's regime and he's, he's trying new things out. Like, this is, this is five years in. There's a comedian, his name is, is Mike Burbigley, and he has this, this bit from a really long time ago about a fish who's in a fishbowl. And he's like, every time he, he turns, he sees something new, and then he, he does a full revolution around, around the bowl. And then it starts all over again, and he sees the same things. And he reacts differently each time, and then he makes another revolution. I feel like that's what it's like watching this team, right? They go through the cycle every single time. It's like, okay, 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 they're, they're struggling. Okay, let's find something that works. Okay, look, it worked. All right, they're not doing it again, okay? It's just, I, it, it drives me insane. As if you were a hardcore fan of this team, I could see how it would drive you even more insane. But what do you do with Jermaine Jones? Uh, I, I'm not Jurgen Klinsmann. Jurgen Klinsmann loves him, so he's probably going to play center mid, center back. Goalkeeper, I don't, I don't know. He's going to be on the field as soon as the suspension's up, right? Like that's, that's one of the frustrating things is that, uh, you know, Kyle Beckerman is 33 years old, and 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 we we have seen him exposed for a lack of speed against certain kinds of teams in the past. Um, he's still a very good player. Uh, he still seems invaluable to this team when he's in the game. Um, but is he going to play in Russia? Uh, you know, so so the U.S. does do better with that that sort of traditional number six which, like I said, is a domino effect through the team, especially with what it allows Michael Bradley to do. But I don't know, you know, I don't know if Jurgen needs to start, you know, whether it's, you know, is it Danny Williams? Is it Will Trapp? But, but as Grant said, I mean, pick someone and, and get it started now. Pick the core, pick the guy. I mean, this is what he did with Germany. He's, he's, he's given so much credit for, for revolutionizing German soccer and, and building the foundation of the team that won the, the 2010 World Cup. Well, wasn't it, I mean, sorry, 2014 World Cup. I mean, wasn't it, you know, Lom and Schweinsteiger and all these guys who started sort of together as young guys and then grew over the time together to become the team that won the World Cup? And I'm not saying this would win the U.S. the World Cup, but it would certainly alleviate some of the situations we've seen over the past eight months. I would tend to agree with you. Um, we're gonna... he, also, he also wanted to remind us all multiple times that he never plays anyone out of position. <laughs> he has been reading. He has been reading. The tweets and the blogs make no mistake, and every, and every time he was in front of a microphone this week, he would remind us he has never played anyone out of position. I think that's semantics. I mean, you know, maybe a guy played something, you know, one time, and so he's putting him back there. Uh, Alejandro Bedoya might beg to differ as well, uh, <laughs> but uh, Jurgen wanted to make that point emphatically. And it's just a matter of how you define out of position. Like, sure, like he could play right wing. He's done it before but is that really his best position right, to right. succeed Jeff Cameron has Jeff Cameron has played right back he has it's a fact but by putting him right back are you putting him where he's best and by putting him at right back you're then putting Michael Orozco in in, in central defense is that a good idea no so 
you know, it, it's there, there's gray area, but I think we all know what works better. I think we saw, you know, like we've talked about, perhaps the worst loss uh, in five years that we've seen for this. Well, team. Let's let's and talk that, about this because I, right response. I I think this was the worst loss of the Klinsman era, but I think it might be the worst U.S. loss since. Iran at the 98 World Cup. I still think losing a Jamaica at home in a Gold Cup semifinal is bad. Um, yes, Guatemala is a lot worse than Jamaica, but that was a that was a semifinal and it was at home. Um, so I would throw that in there perhaps. Uh, but that's the only one I can come up with. Maybe Poland at the O2 World Cup? That was bad. Yeah, it's a European team at a World Cup. They still I mean, got U.S. still got through that night. I, I would say... Worst loss since Iran 98 for the U.S. And only because Jamaica was bad. I, I just think Jamaica was so much better than Guatemala. Wow. Well, that's depressing. All right. <laughs> uh, look, they, they got the points. They're in position to to go through to the Hex. Mexico, we, we should mention, is already through. Uh, 4-0-0, like I think the U.S. had hoped to be at this point. Uh, Mexico has not conceded a goal yet under Juan Carlos Osorio in five games. Um, so you got to look to to the south of the border and and kind of tip your cap. They're they're doing the job now. Of course, we saw what happened that it doesn't necessarily carry through to the hex, right? Mexico needed the U.S.'s help to to go to the World Cup. So we'll see uh, what happens. But we're not done talking about Jurgen Klinsmann uh, and and his job as as head coach and also technical director. We're going to take a quick break and then bring in Liviu and talk about the failure to qualify for the Olympics. Again. Wrote out some goals and stuff. I wanted to get drafted as high as I can. I mean, that's coming out. We'll see. After the regular season, after the bowl season, there is another season. Draft season. As soon as the confetti rains down on the NCAA champion, a crop of college football players officially become NFL prospects. These players' new goal is to convince 32 NFL front offices that they cannot be missed. The road to the pros isn't the same for everyone. There are stars derailed by injury. His season is over following surgery to repair a torn meniscus in his right knee. Blue chip talents overshadowed by red flags. Yeah, I was like, yo, we're going to this party. Let's pop this before we go. And I thought, well, everybody else here is doing it. I guess I can do it. QBs trying to prove they can become the face of an NFL franchise. Just tune out the noise and just really focus in on doing what you need to do to be the most prepared you can. I'm Ben Glicksman, and over the coming weeks, Sports Illustrated's team of reporters will give you a behind-the-scenes look into one of the craziest and most compelling events in sports. The draft goes deeper than seven rounds. Each pick is a player. Each player has a story. Get ready. It's draft season. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Draft Season on iTunes or find it at si.com slash draft season. All right, welcome back. Before we turn our attention to the Olympic team, there are two more aspects uh, of of this Guatemala U.S. series that we need to talk about. Uh, one, Brian, you stayed at the Guatemala Team Hotel, where apparently Domino's Pizza uh, is is the food of choice. Not on purpose. First of all, I I, uh, I I walked into the hotel. There were no signs of Guatemala. It was a courtyard Marriott, um, 
And the woman at the desk who checks me in warns me that it may be kind of loud. And I'm like, well, okay, why is that? We have a soccer team staying here. Oh, damn it. <laughs> um, now, it turns out it was not, it was not loud. The, the Guatemalans were, were, I mean, there were a few fans milling around looking for autographs, but, but you know, no noise, no hijinks, no nonsense. You, you would never have known they were there other than all the blue tracksuits. And the, God, the dozens of Domino's pizza boxes. Dozens. I mean, I, I think, you know, this was like a big thing for them. I mean, there was pizza box Jenga in the lobby uh, two nights. Uh, they they must have devoured dozens of pizzas. So if they looked sluggish, uh, you know, out of sorts, you know, bloated, uh, blame Domino's. Well, there goes our Domino's sponsorship. <laughs> uh, the, the other uh, food item of note uh, is apparently Monica Gonzalez reported this on, on the ESPN2 broadcast. Uh, the owner of Pollo Campero, the chain of, of fried chicken restaurants, supplied the private jet to bring Carlos Ruiz magically freed of, of this legal situation that was supposed to keep him from playing in the U.S., uh, brings him to, to Columbus for the second leg, where by the time he entered the game, it was over. Uh, just You can't. You got to take a step back and, and just remember that CONCACAF World Cup qualifying is special. <laughs> it is. And I would say this, that Pollo Campero is on my flight back from Guatemala to the U.S. Literally, the five people sitting around me all had giant sacks of Pollo Campero that they were bringing to New York uh, so it must be good stuff. We'll have to check it out. Uh, let's founded, founded in Guatemala in 1971, according to uh, Wikipedia. So it is one of their uh, must be true. One of their seminal contributions to world cuisine. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's let's refocus now on on the Olympic team. Livio, you, you were down uh, in Frisco at uh, Toyota Stadium, where the U.S. Uh, for a second game, really, if we're being honest, was was run off the field. They they had walked away. From the first leg of the Olympic playoff in Colombia with a 1-1 draw, they got a, an early goal, but Colombia had, what, three-quarters of the possession that game. Um, and, and that one goal from Luis Gill was the U.S.'s only shot on goal uh, in, in two games. Um, Livy, what, what did you see uh, in Texas? And, and then we can get into some bigger picture things about how Tuesday wasn't all roses for Jürgen Klinsmann. Well, I mean, I think the, the big takeaway is that um, the U.S., I mean, failed again, right? Second Olympics in a row, um, three out of the last four that they've not qualified for. And uh, like you said, I mean, Colombia just played them off the field. In my column today, I mentioned, you know, the, the four pillars of, of soccer, you know, right, as, as coaches uh, define it, technical, tactical, physical, and psychological. And Colombia won at least three, if not all four of those areas. Um, the, the biggest aspect that, that probably buried the U.S., was the the psychological i mean the, the gamesmanship the um you know the things that we saw that also buried them in the qualifying tournament against honduras so it was you know andy herzog was i asked him about that after the game and he was very he said yeah you know you're absolutely right it was exactly the same kind of thing and um you know it's, it's disappointing to see that they didn't learn their lesson and um well deservedly the u.s will not be going to rio 2016 and this is, it's just a, a bigger part of a greater trend. I don't think missing the Olympics, you know, in itself is necessarily the, the biggest deal in the world. Uh, I mean, Spain isn't going to the Olympics. I don't think anyone's really questioning their youth development system. It's, it's pretty, you know, pretty strong and, and in place. But this is, you know, look, the, the U.S. on the youth level, and, and it's a, a massive and complex 
issue. It's not as, as simple as flipping a switch and, and changing things. But like you said, three out of the last four Olympics, the U-17s don't get out of the group stage in the World Cup. The U-20s had a pretty decent World Cup, but uh, go out in, uh, in penalties and, and didn't exactly overwhelm anybody with their play, but they did, to their credit, um, advance. Livio, I guess the, the question is, is how, how does this remedy, how, where, what is the remedy? How, does, how do things get fixed? Well, I think the the important thing to realize or to remember here is that the U.S. puts a very heavy emphasis on qualifying for the Olympics. You know, if you're Spain, if you're Germany, Italy, you know, England, th- those European nations that play under 17, under 19 European championships against, you know, uh, player factories and powerhouses, you know, the nations in Europe that consistently produce players, you have other ways of getting that uh, competition against the best teams in the world. The U.S. doesn't have that outside of the World Cup at, at the the youth age group. So the Olympics is probably a bigger deal for the U.S. than a lot of other soccer nations. Um, and, you know, if you're going to put that kind of emphasis on it and you're going to say that we need to qualify, then you should probably qualify. And, uh, you know, it, it just the remedy to the situation is as as it always has been. You know, I mean, take a look at youth development from the youngest ages. Um, it's really the U.S. has always had this top down philosophy of, you know, if we're good at the top, we'll be good at the bottom. And that's just not how it works, you know, with this emphasis on MLS and, the uh, you know, franchises. And then, you know, if you build that, then we start building the academies underneath. And that's fine to get it started. But now it's really time to, to start focusing on the very bottom and, and bringing it up that way. Uh, you know, as Jurgen Klinsmann famously said before he became head coach and technical director, the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that has the pyramid upside down in that respect. So it's time to to flip that over and, and start um, investing more resources, time, money, coaches, et cetera, into um, the very youngest ages. Whether or not he is fully at fault, partially at fault for this, this falls on him, Grant. He is the, the technical director. He's for getting US paid soccer. more than $3 million a year to be not just the national team coach, but the technical director and, um, that's a lot of money going to not make the Olympics two straight times during his tenure. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a big it's a big problem in that sense. And I do think Levy's totally on top of it as far as I think it's a you know the Olympics is a bit more important to the U.S. than it is to other countries around the world that are more established. Uh, I've been at the Olympics in 2000 when the U.S. made a run to the semifinals and had several players come out of that team to make a big impact on the senior national team. Uh, the 2008 Olympic team, uh, very similar. They didn't go quite as far, thanks to Michael Orozco getting a third-minute red card in the decider against Nigeria. Um, but that was actually a pretty good team that could have gone fairly deep in that tournament, I think. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I'm going to be in Brazil covering Olympic soccer. I'm going to be covering the U.S. women's team full-time now, it looks like. Uh, but disappointing. Um, clearly, Colombia was the better team. Uh, they deserved to win. That said, the U.S. got a good result down in Colombia, and uh, you know, and it was all square at 2-2 thanks to that own goal in the second half. And uh, in both Olympic deciders, the, the real fiasco being the one last October against Honduras, which you've got to win at home. Uh, but in both of these deciders against Honduras and Colombia, the U.S. completely lost its composure. And 
I really thought, yes, the Colombians did some pretty annoying theatrics and it was pretty awful, but I actually came away thinking this U.S. team was a very unlikable team. Uh, they had some dirty moments. They had some unsporting moments, quite a few actually, and they didn't respond well to what was going on. And so I, I fault Andy Herzog on that a little bit too. He's got to keep control of that team and have them prepared to deal with stuff like that, and they weren't. The one thing I will say is comparing Herzog's comments and kind of the general um, situation that the U.S. is in to uh, Colombia coach Carlos Restrepo after after the game when he gave his press conference, you know, night and day. I mean, just completely different. Um, Restrepo was was very, you know, he had nothing but good things to say about his players. Said they're very intelligent. You know, they're great attitude. Um, technically, very gifted players that are going to be important for the future of Colombia. Um, and, you know, it's always easier to, to be happy when you win, obviously, and, and be you're a little bit more brooding when you lose naturally. But, you know, you, you didn't come away from from any from either of these two games thinking, you know, really, wow, that player is somebody who is going to make a big difference for the U.S. in the future. The two that I found, you know, Ethan Horvath had had a good uh, couple well, game and a half, I guess. He came out after the first half of the first game. Second game kept him in it with some some big saves early. Um, I think Will Trapp has been solid for this team. Um, you know, Brian talked about him earlier, but as a potential replacement for Beckerman eventually. Um, and that's kind of, those are the two. I mean, other than that, you know, who, who looked good? Uh, I don't think anybody really covered themselves in glory. It's pretty remarkable uh, that when we talk about Jurgen's um, role and tenure as technical director, uh, I find it pretty remarkable that in the most recent CONCACAF championships, at the U-17, U-20, U-23, and senior level, the U.S. has failed to make the final. The U.S. failed to win a gold or a silver medal in any of the past, you know, most recent championships at any age group. Um, now, I haven't done the research to see if that's ever happened before, but this is across the board from the, from the, from the lowest age group up to the senior level, a failure to maintain uh, the U.S.'s position in CONCACAF. It has been surpassed in its own region. Let's not even talk about, you know, when, when Levy, you talked about the, the player factories. Let's not even talk about Spain and France and Germany. You know, the U.S. has been passed by Honduras, Honduras and Costa Rica and, and places like that in its own backyard. And, and that has to be, you know, you, you need, a, you need a, a foundation. You need a, a base of strength from which to assault the, the rest of the planet. And the U.S. has lost that under Jurgen Klinsmann. And uh, I don't know that that's a coincidence, failure in all four of those tournaments. The other thing that Restrepo said that really kind of resonated with me is they were asking him, Colombian journalists were asking him, okay, what's the group going to look like in Rio? And he said, you know what? I mean, we have a pool of about 40 players we can choose from for this tournament. It's going to you know, require some, some negotiation, some back and forth. And my immediate reaction was, I don't think I could name 40 players that I would say, okay, that guy at the under 23 level is international caliber for the United States, um, you know, let alone at the senior level or, or, or whatever. But uh, it just seems like, I mean, you're right there. There's a real, and I think this goes beyond Klinsman, honestly. I mean, I don't know that anybody at the, the lower levels, again, starting lower than, than the, the highest levels, they're, they're, we're just not producing good enough players in this country. I mean, you should have some choices, some tough decisions to make. And, and rather than having to, to think about playing guys out of position or, or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, but 
Does the U.S. have 40 players that they could choose from to make a solid U23, solid senior national team? Uh, I don't think they do. I will say this, that Claudio Reyna disagrees with you. Uh, he was one of the guys I had a long conversation with this week, and I asked him, as I asked other people, I was like, does the U.S. not have the players? And what was interesting in Reyna's response, and you, know, you can disagree with him, uh, is not only did he say the U.S. has the players, but he argued, he mentioned a ton of young players' names, including several who are on this under-23 team, guys like Kellen Acosta, played out of position, by the way, um, who, you know, several other names, too, that he mentioned. And, um, and yes, I think he was probably being a little defensive about his own previous role as the youth technical director for the United States, but um, I found it interesting that he specifically responded with not just, you know, veteran, adult, does the U.S. have the players? He responded with specific names for younger guys. I can think of a few in the very, I mean, there's a couple like in the U14s and, and, you know, yeah, a couple at each age group, but I don't know if, if you can, you know, I, I guess the short answer is I do disagree. I, I don't know if you can say that there are enough good players at each age group to really, truly create that competition that breeds, you know, uh, success the way that the Columbia's has obviously um, in the last little bit here, just against the U S there was definitely nobody on, on the U S side that, that looked, all that threatening. Now, I was I was a little surprised that Jerome Casavetter didn't get more of, of a run out uh, in both legs. I, I thought that he, um, you know, is is a, a very talented player. Now, maybe it has to do with the fact that he's barely playing on on the club level at a high level, um, or just personal preference by by Andy Herzog. Um, there are a lot of players now, though, who, um, you know, in in the the twenty twelve. The qualifying team went through the same thing. Like now, how do they make up for this lost time? I thought one of the the coolest images from last night was seeing the U23s watching the senior national team game in their locker room before taking the field. Um, and and for these guys who are you know young but but mature enough, they're watching one set of players essentially playing for the U23s future, right? I mean, a lot of these players are figuratively going to be representing the U.S. in the 2018 World Cup right before they take the field to play for their own immediate futures and to help them prepare for that leap. Um, you know, fortunately for them, it was not the worst day in U.S. soccer history because the the men's, the senior team ended up winning. But here are, are these guys now um, who, if they're not, you know, guys who could get senior looks right away, like Jordan Morris, who didn't play all that great uh, in the two legs, um, you know, with, with higher expectations on him. Um, you know, what, what do they do? It's... It's a big question. I found it interesting in Guatemala City last week before all hell broke loose and the U.S. lost, Klinsman sat down with about four of us print guys for about an hour the day before the game. And we talked about all sorts of stuff. It was, I mean, Klinsman remains a very interesting interview, by the way. That hasn't stopped. Um, and he was talking about the previous Olympic failure uh, four years ago. And he basically looks at that as a lost generation, even now at the senior level with a lot of those guys. And, you know, Breck Shea was not part of this group here. Um, you know, he, he really dropped the hammer on, um, on Bill Hamid and Sean Johnson. Now, Hamid's injured right now, but Klinsman really didn't mention that. He's like, you know, we've, we're now looking beyond them. And, okay. A lot of that falls on him too. It's it's ah oh God, what did I? It's it's the same thing over and over and over again. I guess if you want consistency down from from the top to the bottom, you got it. It's just not what the what the U.S. and and its fan base is looking for. 
Uh, man, good times. <laughs> well, <laughs> all that said, um, still looking forward to watching the Olympics this summer. The draw is coming up in, in a couple of weeks. If Neymar's there for Brazil, that, that'll that be a, an extra wrinkle. Mexico, defending gold medalist. Um, you can be sure that if they repeat that, you're going to hear about that as well. Well, the U.S. women's team, which is going to be great to watch and, and the favorite to win another gold medal and uh, has some of their own young players who I think are, are pretty exciting. So I'm sure we'll we'll, ha- we'll have a big podcast uh, talking about the U.S. women in the Olympics um, if they don't go on strike. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm just so like negative today. It's the worst. <laughs> one nation, one team. <laughs> And don't forget, I mean, there's always some gems in there in all these competitions. Like Fiji is going to be in the men's, uh, in the men's tournament. You got a you know nation like Iraq is going to be in the men's tournament. So some interesting storylines to follow, even though the U.S. isn't there. Fiji to win the gold medal, bigger uh, underdogs than Leicester to win the Premier League. <laughs> the fighting VJ Sings. Um, I don't know. We, we got to check out Bovada and see if uh, if they're if they're higher than five thousand to one. Good times. So you're saying I should have gotten this Fiji Olympic gold medalist tattoo? Uh, if were you sober when you got oh, this it? This is crazy. <laughs> oh, this is deteriorating quickly. Uh, okay, before we uh, we get out of here and close up shop, there's a pretty big game this weekend. Uh, club season resumes, and just like uh, in the fall, the the FIFA flu will hopefully not hit Barcelona or Real Madrid. Classical. News to Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona won the first one 4 nothing in Madrid. Ten points clear of Real Madrid in, in La Liga. There's nothing really in the league at stake, which I mean puts a little bit of a damper on it, but Grant's still the biggest rivalry in the world. Yeah, it's a must-watch game uh, if you're into soccer, and uh, I expect there will be all sorts of stuff happening, maybe even more so because we're kind of going into it not thinking there is as much at stake. Um, you know, if you're Real Madrid you really want to avoid getting spanked in this game. Uh, it's the first time Zinedine Zidane as manager is coming up against Barcelona. Uh, he's going to be on the road. Um, and Barcelona's for the most part been killing people and is certainly capable of doing that to Real Madrid. Um, that said, you never know what might happen in this rivalry. And so, uh, it's definitely going to be worth watching. Um, I don't think the league's at stake here. Uh, and yet, I still think Real Madrid, both teams obviously have a chance to win Champions League. And you could argue that Real Madrid has the talent to do it and maybe is slightly more likely to have a chance in Champions League now that they are kind of focused on that and not on winning the league. Absolutely. And for them, um, and Livia, maybe you agree or, or not, but this is an opportunity for them to kind of plant a seed of doubt in Barcelona's mind, right? Like, you know, they take these three points in Barcelona or even force a draw. You know, it's it's it doesn't really matter in terms of the league race. But then you start thinking, okay, in a few weeks we might meet again, and and you know what, they played a lot better, and, and they're very capable of of knocking us off. You know, talent wise, I don't think anybody's questioning Real Madrid at all. Um, it's just a matter of how that talent plays together. And right now, Barcelona's talent is is playing together better than anyone in the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that just hits it right on the head. I think we are. In in many ways, so very lucky to to be able to see this Barcelona team do what they do right now. The last time they lost in any competition was in October. Uh, I mean, they they have been spanking teams left and right. Um, Lionel Messi is is just an absolute god. 
Um, you know, you got Luis Suarez, you got Neymar, uh, two of the other probably top five, top 10 players in the world right now based on current form and, you know, thanks to each other, certainly. Um, but man, it's it's been just a real pleasure to watch Barcelona recently. And and Real Madrid has, is always it's always an interesting kind of contrast between these two clubs because of the stability and because of the tradition and the the real kind of reverence that, that Barcelona has for its past. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Johan Cruyff um, was inconsolable for about five days after that. Um, but, you know, and Real Madrid has this, this reputation of constantly changing things up. Uh, you know, we're going to fire our manager twice a season, that sort of thing. So it's always an interesting contrast and, and always uh, kind of fun to see who comes out on top when. But, I mean, like you said, even if Barcelona loses this game, I, I, the league's not at stake here. Um, they're nine points clear of Atletico, ten points clear of Real. Um, I mean, it, it's. I think it's just going to be fun to watch. I just want to make one request to La Liga. Don't schedule your biggest games, both of them this year, immediately after an international break. Because these guys have been apart from each other for two weeks. And yes, they've been playing, but they're not. They got knocks in many cases. A lot of these guys are traveling back from South America, mainly Barcelona guys. Uh, and it's and if you have control over the, you know, the spectacle, if you can make it as good as possible, do it, you know? It's almost like asking a manager to play a lineup that knowingly works. <laughs> um, this will be the first game uh, at Barcelona since Joan Cruyff's passing, so you can be sure there will be an emotional element to the game as well, and I'm sure there will be a, a moment of silence, something in the 14th minute. ton of uh, great gestures around the world during, during all of the friendlies, um, so obviously... Someone who was uh, very well revered and respected. Uh, if you get a chance, listen to the interview I did with Thomas Rongan uh, on the podcast list here. Uh, we did that down in Guatemala because we were both there. and It was the day that the Cruyff had passed away. And just some amazing stories that he told um, in soccer terms and also life terms. Uh, it's a good listen. Yeah, I mean, he lived with them. He played with them. If anyone has a, a window into the mind, I think Thomas Rongan is one of them. Um, and it was a, a fantastic listen, so definitely go ahead and do that. Um, and with that, I think we are going to move out of the FIFA break and, and come back with you next week. So for Grant Wall, Brian Strauss, Livy Bird, for our producer Alex Abnos, I am Avi Creditor. We will talk to you next week on the Planet Football Podcast. about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.